Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you here this morning. A lot more people were on time today, which I could congratulate you for that, but I'm not gonna. Our, our key passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 8 through 10. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, you're welcome to. Um, otherwise, I'll just read it here for you this morning. Luke chapter 15, verses 8 through 10. Or suppose, Jesus said, a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. I have to be uh, just completely honest with you this morning. This is a weird parable to me. Um, and, and I want you to consider just briefly, what is this parable about? Is it about the coin? Uh, this is something that's hard for me to relate to in this parable. I, I think that part of the problem is that a couple of things get lost in translation. Um, when I think of a coin that I lost, I most often think of a penny. Because I just don't. I don't have cash on me ever, so I never have coins on me ever. And so this is what I think of when I read this passage, that this woman lost a penny and she turned her whole house over to find a penny. And then she called all her friends so they could celebrate a penny. So first I have to adjust my understanding of what the coin could be. Now the coin could be as much as one day's wages for this woman which gives me a little bit more perspective, because for me, that's less of this and more of this, right? But this proves an important point, because even then, if I were to lose a whole day's wages, it would be a bummer. I would be upset about that. But hopefully, like this woman, we have enough set aside, right? So she loses one coin, but how many does she have left? She has nine, which means she's been saving her money. At the very least, she's not spending each amount every day. So she goes, she cleans the house, and then she calls her friends. But the fact that she searches for this coin and then calls her friends, it proves an important point that this parable wants to make. To some, the coin, as they hear this teaching, is inconsequential. The coin has value, but to them it is not valuable. She should look for it for sure, but if it doesn't turn up, she still has nine other coins. It's not the end of the world. And maybe to the reader, it is the amount itself that is inconsequential, especially to someone who makes a lot more than one silver coin a day. They're not going to care so much about the one silver coin. They have more money that they don't even have to worry about. In fact, someone who hears this parable may spend a silver coin a day on just throwaway things. And so the idea of this woman searching for the coin becomes a really trivial matter because the coin itself doesn't matter. I mean, they can understand her looking for it, but calling your friends, really, so they can come and celebrate with you, it's, it's, it's over the top. Well, is the story about the coin or is the story about the woman? 
If the reader does not value the coin, then the woman's response is way over the top because not only does she turn her house upside down to find it, but she calls all of her friends together so they can have a coin-finding party. I don't know what you serve at that kind of party, but she calls them to rejoice with her because she has found her lost coin. And can you imagine getting that phone call? Hey, would you come over and celebrate because I lost my coin and then I found it? And you would be like... Sweet. Maybe. She sees the coin as a treasure. And it is valuable to her even if it is not valuable to anyone else. And it is not only it does not only have value because it's a coin, but it has value to her specifically. Really this story is about her and how she sees value in something that others may not, and how she rejoices over finding what was lost, even though others wouldn't have even bothered to look for it. And we should be glad that the woman is this way. Because she represents God and his reaction to reclaiming one sinner. Verse 10 says, In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Jesus spoke these that Jesus who spoke these words is the one who is going to make that finding possible. That reclamation happen. Jesus did something pretty remarkable early on in his ministry. It was not a show of power or all the amazing things he did, though those things were definitely present. Instead, it was a commitment to seeing Everyone as God saw them. It was to realize that everyone has value no matter who they are. And more so that everyone is valuable no matter what they have done. Then Jesus demonstrably loved them with the love that was overflowing from God's own heart. He called fishermen and tax collectors and roughnecks to be his closest friends and followers. He spoke to people who had been shunned. Maybe their entire lives he touched the untouchable and he did it all because he knew that all of these who were overlooked may have been far away from their families or the religious people, but they were not so far away from their God. That he wouldn't notice they were gone and search the house for them. And Jesus rejoiced in their restoration. We are grateful this morning for that. Because we are that lost coin. We are one of many. We are overlooked. We are easily lost. And we are not valued by everyone. But God looks at us just as we are this insignificant coin. And he searches for us. And when he finds us, he parties. The next song we're going to sing is a new one called You Say. But I want you to listen to the the chorus of this song. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I am strong when I think I am weak. You say I am held when I am falling short. And when I don't belong... You say I am yours.
All right. Hello, everyone. Hello. Nice to see you. Um, we are now in, you might, well, you'll believe this because it's been a while. We are in week 26 of the story. Uh, and in the story, uh, we are viewing the Bible as one overarching narrative. So we have, we've learned over time that there are different characters. There's a plot. There's a pretty major problem that needs to be solved. Uh, and there is lots and lots and lots of drama. Lots of drama. Drama everywhere. Uh, God's great desire, if you'll remember, is to have relationship with humanity, which he lovingly formed and breathed life into. And he wants humanity to choose him so that he can love humanity as he wants to. And God knows that there is no other thing, no other creation, nothing else that compares to him. Satan, however, stands against God. Satan, the tempter, the evil one, um, that guy that we don't like, you know, whatever you want to call him, uh, all of it works. He stands against God and his great desire is to influence man to turn away from God. So God is trying uh, to be the, the God that we need, the God that we want, and Satan keeps trying to convince us that we can put other things in God's place. Uh, human- so we're in, the, we're in between these two forces that are pulling at us, and we have shown that when given the opportunity to choose between God and something else, we most often choose what? Something else, like almost anything else, whatever, whatever just feels good at the time. That's what we choose. Um, but the story has fundamentally changed with the birth of Jesus. Amen. I mean, that's one of those times where, you know, like the, the amen is obvious. So, I mean, I, I open the door for you, OK, by saying Everything changed with the birth of Jesus. Amen. And then you say, Amen. Was that so hard? Come on, people. You can't be asleep already. It's too early. Um, it is a turning point in the narrative where God decides he will intervene in the messed up dy- dynamic in such a dramatic way that nothing will ever be the same again. Because what? The love of God in Jesus changes everything. Now you're there. Now you're with me. But Jesus was, as we saw last week, was not the, the kind of Messiah that most people believed he should be. Uh, they were waiting for a warrior king who would look the part, who would play the part, who would lead them to victory over all their enemies. And instead, they got this kind of scraggly looking guy born to an unwed couple in a barn. And as we talked about last week, heaven announced his coming so that people would know this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah, this is the promised one. Except he announced it to who? To shepherds, who then immediately went and, and, and worshipped Jesus there in the barn. And the wise men came to acknowledge the birth of Jesus, but they only came because they were looking at the stars and they were looking for the one to come. And so they went and they worshipped Jesus. And, and Anna and Simeon, 
who were in the temple when Jesus was brought there for the first time, they recognized Jesus, but they only recognized Jesus because they had been waiting and looking for him. Anna had been in the temple forever, day and night, worshiping God. And so it reinforced something that we know from the story to be true. We know that we do often choose things other than God, yes? We know that Satan is often trying to do whatever he can to pull us away from God. So God is looking for someone who will hear his voice, listen to what he says, and then follow him. Now we've seen that play out throughout the entire Old Testament. That God was looking for people who would hear his voice, listen to what he says, and then follow him wherever it was he said they should go. And we have talked a lot in recent weeks about listening and hearing and waiting and all of those different wonderful things that we've learned about. But we haven't talked as much about following. Uh, Following is an extremely important concept in the whole of the story, but it is especially important at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. You might even call following the theme of the opening chapters. Uh, if you think of, so if you think about it for a moment, and you think about the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and you think about probably some of the stories you know, and if you put those stories together, the common theme you are going to see in all of those things is a call, right? You hear the voice, you listen to the words, but then the big part is following what those words say. Now, here's the kind of neat thing about this. This whole process of following starts at the very top. Who is, who is the one that follows the direction of God and makes sure that he follows the direction of God? It's Jesus. Alright? So, Jesus followed the direction of God. Now, on the surface, that sounds a little bit like a weird thing to say, depending upon what your view of Jesus is. Um especially with the way that John described Jesus as we looked at last week. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's interesting then to think that, that when Jesus comes as a person and he grows up, what is the first thing that he decides to do before he starts his ministry? He decides to figure out a way to best follow God. I mean, really, that's... That's what we see here in Matthew chapter 4. If you have your Bibles open up there, it'll be on the screen behind me. And we've looked at the passage actually that comes after this before. If you remember, Jesus said in John chapter 5, he can do nothing on his own. He can only do what the Father shows him. And this, there's a great example here from Matthew chapter 4. Starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. 
If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Now, there's a couple things that we need to note from this passage that are very, very important, okay? Why did Jesus end up in the wilderness? Why did Jesus end up in the wilderness? He followed the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. So did Jesus wake up one day and just decide, I'm going to go spend a couple of months in the wilderness? No. He was told to go there. And then what did he choose to do? He chose to follow that direction and to go out into the wilderness and do whatever it is that is going to happen there. Which tells us something that I do not want you to ignore. This process that Jesus is going through here is a real process. It's an actual thing. There is a point to Jesus going out in the wilderness and it is God who is sending him to that place. Now, the wilderness is a really symbolic idea in the Bible. We don't actually necessarily know exactly where he went. But when you hear the word wilderness, what are some ideas that come to your mind? Dry? What's that? The children of Israel in the wilderness? Inhospitable? Scary? Right, so there's all these <laughs> snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Um, so there's all these things that are there, right? But the wilderness evokes some certain ideas within us. You know what the wilderness is? It's nowhere. When you are in the wilderness, where are you? Nowhere. You are just out there. And, and here's the word that jumps to my mind when I think about it. Besides dry and you know, all these different things, is alone. That, that idea of being alone out there is, is an important one. <laughs> no sharks in the wilderness. <laughs> that would put it over the top, and we just don't need to go there. It's a place of dryness and isolation. It's a place of loneliness. It's the place where sometimes, either physically or spiritually, you have to go in order to figure things out. What was the purpose of God having Israel wander in the desert? To straighten things out. That's why they were in the wilderness. So the Holy Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness so that two things would happen. First, he spent 40 days praying and fasting. So what is, what is Jesus doing during these 40 days where he's praying and fasting? Who is he praying to? What do you think he is asking God? God, what do you want me to do? And he spent how many days? Forty 
speaking to God about what is going to happen in his life and what God wants him to do. Digest that for a second. 40 days, not doing anything else, but speaking to God. Um, why did he do that? Because Jesus, get this, okay? What is the number one thing that Jesus wanted to do while he was on earth? He wanted to do what God told him to do. That is the number one thing Jesus wanted to do while he was here. He is going to do what God tells him to do. And so, he has to spend time with the Father in order to know what it is that God wants him to do. And it's only after these 40 days, the devil's a tricky one, by the way, it's after these 40 days where he has an Eden and all he has tried to do is align himself with the Father that the tempter approaches him. The tempter was not going to tempt Jesus with something that Jesus did not care about. In fact, these three things that he tempts Jesus with are specifically engineered to get to him. They are specifically engineered to get to him. He chose to hit Jesus in the places where he knew Jesus would be the most vulnerable. And honestly, it's not three different places, it's only one. It's only really one place that he pokes from different angles when he's coming at Jesus. What he was tempted with was to use his power to what? Turn a rock into bread, to have the angels come to him, to own the earth. He was, he was offered these things. He was tempted to use his power, but more so to take his rightful place as the Son of God and inherit the kingdom of the world, which, by the way, Jesus did not need Satan to give him. Can we just be clear about that? And Satan, being really clever in trying to get Jesus to claim this, who he is, even... Okay, let me back up a second. On the first one, he is asked to change a rock into bread, And how does Jesus respond to this request? He he replies with scripture. So let's take a mental look at it again. He says to Jesus first, if you are the, which he is, then turn this rock into bread. Because Jesus is hungry. And how does Jesus reply? He replies with scripture. It is written. Right? He goes to that place and that's how he responds. He is doing what? He's responding to the temptation by keeping himself aligned with God. But think about how drastically tricky this is. How psychologically messed up. This is who you are, so why don't you be that? But he says no because he's going to do the work of the Father. So the second time when he's taken to the top of the temple, right? This time, Satan uses scripture to try to influence him to jump and use the power of heaven, which is his. Right? 
And so he tells him, this is what the Bible says about you. Now, for a weaker-minded person, right, what is that intended to do? It's intended to confuse the will of God. God has told you this, but this also sounds like God. In fact, he even said this. So really, you're not doing anything wrong when you just go ahead and jump. It's fine. But how does Jesus respond? With the word of God. He responds with the word of God again. So what is Jesus clinging to throughout this whole scenario? To God and to what God has said and to what God wants him to do. And then in the last case, I think Satan is just throwing everything at him. You can have the whole world if you worship me. Which again, the ironic thing is that Jesus doesn't need him to do that. But it's a last-ditch effort to say, who are you going to follow? I can give you something immediately, whereas your father is asking you to wait and do terrible things before you can even claim sonship and what is rightfully yours. I'll give it to you now. And what does Jesus say? No. Satan the tempter was tempting Jesus to take control of the story and to make it his own. If Jesus had done any of these things, who would then be in charge? Jesus would. If he did any of these things and claimed what was rightfully his, he would be the one calling the shots, not God the Father. And what is Jesus' priority? He is going to follow the will of the Father in all things. Again, John chapter 5, I cannot do anything by myself. I can do nothing by myself. I can only do what the Father shows me. So when he answered Satan's challenges, he answered with the truth of God, and in so doing, he confirmed that he was following the direction of God and not his own desires. But I want you to grasp something here. In order to follow the will of God in this case, Jesus had to do something really important. He had to empty himself of his pride and what he rightfully deserved for just being. And he had to put all of those things away and say what? The will of the Father is more important than me. The will of the Father is more important than me. And in these moments, what is Jesus choosing? To follow God. He is choosing to follow God in all things. So Jesus set a really good example, but he was actually on the timeline, not the first within the story to follow the direction of God and to be a follower. Really, the best example that we have of this early on in the scripture is John the Baptist, who followed the direction of God and then of Jesus. Now, in this case too, we, we, can't, we can't assume that this was just like an easy thing for John to do. And, and here's what is so fascinating about John. 
You only see John following God and Jesus. You do not see him doing anything else besides following the will of God and following Jesus. Like that's it. And even when he has a moment of doubt, Jesus treats it like it's not a moment of doubt, but like it's a time for encouragement. And he tells him who he is. So, John the Baptist, he followed the direction of God, and this was a big deal because John's whole reason for being was to point the way, was to, point the way to someone else. Imagine that you're a child, and you're, at, uh, you're sharing at school, and it's career day in second grade. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a police officer. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a preacher. Why? Why would you do that? And then John, over in the corner, raises his hand. Uh, what do you want to do, John? Well, I want to just make someone else more important. Who? I don't know yet. But I'll know when I see him. I mean, think about that for a moment. It's a mission he was born with. And we have two good examples of how John embraced this mission from Matthew chapter 3 and John chapter 1. So first, Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Okay, Uh, the first thing that I want you to see is that the mission John was given was not necessarily an an easy one, because where are his headquarters? They're in the wilderness. And what do we know about the wilderness? Right? We know something about the wilderness already. Um, But he was... And secondly, if that weren't bad enough, what is his message? The first part of his message is that every single person needs to do what? Repent. You're a bunch of suckers. You all need to see what's wrong with yourselves and you need to admit that you're wrong about yourself. And then the next thing he says to them is what? There is one who is coming. But here's the weird thing. People are going to the wilderness to hear what John has to say. And they are being baptized in this repentance and looking for the one who is coming. Think about that. It's just, it's, just, it, it, it's a fascinating dynamic that we see. Maybe it was his eccentricity that drew people to him, but whatever it was, people came and he told them to repent for the kingdom of heaven was near. But his message was not about himself ever. It was about the one who was to come from John chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. 
Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees had been sent, who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, here's what I love about this, what is so remarkable. John has been given a mission which he has fully embraced, yes? Yeah, he's fully embraced this thing. He's going to point the way to the one who is coming, but he was given an opportunity here by the religious leaders to say who he was. And they even start throwing suggestions out there. Because what do they believe about him? He must be someone who is important. Because you are speaking to people and you're baptizing people, so therefore you, John, must be an important person. And when he is asked if he is an important person, what does he say? No. I'm not an important person. And then he quotes scripture. But listen to what that scripture says. I am here to make the way for God. That's what, that's what he says about himself. He was given an opportunity similar to Jesus to claim a sense of greater importance for himself and church. When we are given the opportunity to claim greater importance for ourselves, what do we do? We grab it with both hands. Because what do we want to be? Important. We want to matter. And John shuns all of those things. And he said exactly what his job was. I am the voice of one in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And in other words, he said, I am inconsequential. Because there is someone coming after me who, and this is crazy in these dirty, dirty times, I can't even touch his feet. I'm not, even, I'm not even good enough for that. I can't even touch his feet. So what do we see here? We see a tremendous amount of humility, don't we? I mean, he put his whole life into telling other people about someone else who was coming. Another passage about John. Uh, John 1, 29 through 34. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. That's, that's confusing right there, right? I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now, Here's why I bring this passage up. 
This is a special moment, and it's, it's extra special for whom? For John. It's extra special for John. Um, John had been in the wilderness. He had been calling everyone. Everyone is asking him, like, well, then who is the one, John? And John, I, I, I don't know. Well, he's, he's probably around the corner or something. Um, and so he's been waiting his whole life, church, to do this one thing. He's been waiting his whole life to do this one thing. And what does he get to tell everybody? Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who is the first person that gets to declare the, the mission of Jesus on earth? It's John. And John is thrilled to do it. Because his whole life has been leading up to this one moment, which is about someone else. But that someone else is so wonderful, is so good, is so amazing that John embraces the mission. And when he has the opportunity to point the way to the one, he does it without hesitation and with great enthusiasm. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chose to follow, and he carried out his mission with all of his heart, and he got to be among the first to identify Jesus, and there is great joy in that. John eventually, in fact, lost his life, in part because of who he was and what he was saying and who he was talking to. But he went to his grave knowing that he did what God had asked him. He did not become the story. He pointed the way to Jesus. Lastly, there's one more really big example of following within uh, the early parts of the Gospels. And that, of course, is the disciples who were called to follow Jesus. And did they follow Jesus? Yes, literally. There's Jesus. Let's walk behind him. Right? They followed Jesus in a very literal sense. Uh, We're going to talk a lot more about the disciples over the coming weeks, but the moment we want to appreciate this morning is their response to the call that Jesus gives them. These were not men who were born with a mission. No one was telling them in the cradle that your job is to point the way to someone else. They were just ordinary dudes without any sense of calling from heaven. In fact, they were the kind of men that no one would have chosen these guys to be like the the walk along with you unless you're looking for a security detail, right? These are not the guys you would choose to be on the front lines. They were roughnecks and fishermen and ordinary people. One was a tax collector who had cheated his people for years. They were not the people that the promised Messiah would choose to help him talk about, talk about the king. These, these men are going to teach people. These men are going to help heal and do all these things. The answer is what? Yes. So what is going on here? Because Jesus chose them without hesitation. 
Why do you think Jesus chose these people? What's just the, maybe the most common sense answer? Because when you invite someone to follow you, what do you want them to say? Yes. What was Jesus looking for? Someone who would hear and listen and follow. And so he calls these people. From Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi's son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. <laughs> I just, I love how little there is to that, right? But we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, because Jesus has supernatural hearing, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, we've looked at this particular verse on its own a lot of the time and, and talked about Jesus being the salvation of people. And that's a, it's a good application of it. But it falls within a particular context, which I think helps us a little bit today. The idea that Jesus presented seems to be, you know, common sense to us. If Jesus invites us to follow him, then what would we say to Jesus face to face? Yes. So even when we read this story, we're like, of course Matthew followed Jesus. He's Jesus, right? But that's, there is so much more to it than that. It seems to be common sense to us, but to everyone, and I mean Matthew himself, this didn't make a lot of sense. Um, and it was anything but common sense to the religious leaders at the time. In fact, it's so crazy that they hear that Jesus is there and they walk up and what is the first question they ask? What is he doing? Because this is not what someone who is close to God does. So, you spend time with the good people and not the bad people. The bad people, in fact, and this is not so foreign to us, the bad people had to become good first before they could be around the good people. Well, there's a question that I have about that. If the bad people can never be around the good people, how do they know what it's like to be a good person? If, in fact, the good people are saying, you're too bad to be with me, why would they want to be a good person? Jesus says, in response to this whole scenario, it is not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. And so who is he going to call to follow him? The sick. In per, and, and, and why? why does, and I love, this, I love this image that he creates here. Why is it the sick? Hmm. It's the sick because when you are sick, what do you know? I'm sick. I need a doctor. If you are well, someone says, are you going to go to the doctor soon? And you're going to say, no. 
There's nothing wrong with me. Ah, and there it is. You see, the sick know there's something wrong with them. And so, when a Savior comes along, they will embrace the Savior. Because they know there's something wrong. But those who think they are well, why do they need a doctor? If they've got God figured out, why do they need a Savior? If they're not even that bad, why would they need forgiveness, they might say. We just laugh at them. The sick will follow because they know they have a need. And so Jesus calls men from among the sick to be the people who will help usher in the kingdom of God. The well, they might have said no. From John chapter 1, we have another story of calling Uh, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now, this is something, this tells us something really special about John, by the way. John's message had been so totally wrapped up in, there is one who is coming, that when he pointed the way to the one who was coming, two people who were following John stopped following John. And started following the one who came. So when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went with him where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth! Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. As someone who comes from Fresno, (laughs) come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, (laughs) Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that, he then added. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, there is so much to learn from this passage. It's just so, so much stuff happens, right? Um, But but there are some things we we need to acknowledge about Jesus. And first of all, Jesus does draw people to himself. Um, People want to be around him. And 
you know, these, these two that, that we hear about, they're already following John, but when given the opportunity to follow Jesus, they know he's the real thing, in part because John told them, and in the other part because he's Jesus. And they've been living their life waiting for this one. So they begin to follow Jesus, and they get to spend the whole, the whole day with him. Now, here's where some kind of really interesting things happen. So Andrew is one of those, and he goes home, and he gets his brother, right? And he brings his brother back. And he says, we have found the Messiah that is the Christ. So what has Andrew decided? And this is, this, it's common sense, okay? But it's important. What has he decided? That Jesus is what? The Messiah, and therefore, he is the leader that he should follow. It, he recognizes that, and he chooses it. Now, Simon comes, and Jesus says to him, right now, your name is Simon. But if he follows Jesus, who will he be? He will be Peter. So, it's a small moment in this place, but understand this. Jesus is offering these people who have not been anything a new identity as a disciple of Jesus. To where who they are fundamentally changes by following him. And then for Nathaniel, he pulls out this little trick, right? Because Nathaniel needed a little bit more nudging. We have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. You've got to be kidding me. There is no Messiah from Nazareth. And so Jesus comes and he shows him who he is. And then what decision does Nathanael make? You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You are the one I should follow. A follower decides to follow because they believe in the one who is leading. Yeah? That's, that's the only reason to decide to follow. It's because you believe in the one who is leading. And without this conviction, following at best is a half-hearted affair. And a follower who does not fully believe in the leader will branch off every chance they get. Every time they disagree, every time they want something different, they will go their own way. Some of his disciples followed based on being called or the way Jesus treated them. Others were shown signs of power that helped convince them. But no matter the circumstances, you don't leave your life behind and follow someone for three years if you don't believe that that person is worth following. These men had no idea what they were getting themselves into. No clue. Sometimes they did well. Other times they didn't. And that is because to follow is a choice that you have to make every single day in every moment over and over again. And if you think about what is going to be coming up for the disciples, we recognize that sometimes they forget to make the choice. Sometimes they think they have an answer. All right, so what do we learn from Jesus, from John, and the disciples? Here's some just very basic things for us, okay? Number one, following is a choice. It is a choice that is made over and over again. Jesus chose to follow God, and then he followed God and did the things that he was told to do. John chose to follow God, and then he followed God. 
and did what he was supposed to do. The disciples chose to be followers of Jesus and they learned on the way what it meant to follow. Secondly, following requires knowing who the leader is. Right? God is the leader. Jesus follows God. And the disciples follow Jesus who is following God. But who is the leader? God. Because everything is pointing back to him. Thirdly, and maybe the most difficult, to be a follower, you have to have humility. You have to. In order to be a follower, you have to put your own desire, ideas, and will aside. Period. Now, it's even worse than you think. Because Jesus had to deny what was rightfully his. And Jesus had to let people treat him like trash when he did not deserve it at all. And when we think we deserve to be treated better, how do we act? We let everybody know that we should be treated better. But you must trust that the one who is leading knows better than you do. And you have to submit to the leader's direction whether you understand it or not. Because the leader knows things that you don't know. That's why they're the leader. Lastly, this is going to blow your minds. You ready? If you are in the lead, you're not following. Which is why we have talked about doing what together? Pray, wait, listen, and then do. So that we are not leading. We are following. And God is in front of us. Because following changes who you are. The love of God in Jesus changes everything. It changes how we experience community. It changes how we see ourselves. It changes how we respond to other people who have needs, it changes what we believe their real need is. Being a follower changes everything. Being a follower of Jesus changes everything. Because if you are truly a follower, you become more and more like the one in the lead. And you start to anticipate the choices that the leader may make as you're following. You start to understand some things that you didn't understand when you first started. You become more like the leader. We are Christians. In our very name, Christ is there. And we too choose. We choose to follow Jesus. We struggle, but we try to humble ourselves. And to submit to his will. Because Jesus is worth following. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this. The way that Jesus shows us how to follow. I thank you for the way that he treated his disciples. How he was hard on them when he needed to be. How he was encouraging when he needed to be. God, how he took them to the places they needed to go. God, I pray that we would have a a commitment to following, that it's a choice we make every day, 
that we recognize you are a leader worth following, that we, we acknowledge that you know more than we do. And, and, and on top of that, God, that you are a good and loving God who is going to take us to good places. And you showed that by offering Jesus as the Savior that we need. For God, we are the sick. And we need him as our Savior. Thanks for being a leader who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have anything for prayer and encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in a really dynamic way, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.